we talk a lot about urban rural polarization in America, but in this case, you have the urban voters literally voting to set wolves on the rural voters. Exactly, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained. As we sit here recording, we're just one week away from those pivotal midterm elections. Today, we're going to tell you what to expect in the elections and also talk about what the implications might be for the future of some important areas of policy, including American democracy and the war in Ukraine. I'm also joined today for the very first time by my co-host, Catherine Wood, who's going to be joining us for many episodes in the coming months. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How are you feeling about your first episode? I'm excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're excited to have you here. All right. So I'm going to begin this episode by just talking through what we expect right now in the midterm election. So as we're recording this, they're currently about a week away. I don't think that the polls are going to change that much in the next week. It generally doesn't really happen. So I think the situation as it stands now is probably what what we can expect going into Tuesday. And it's worth saying that there's a significant amount of uncertainty over what's going to happen next Tuesday. We've seen some really big polling misses in the last few election cycles. So everything that we're about to say is based on the polls as they look now. But you should really bake in an extra measure of uncertainty just to deal with the fact that we don't know how wrong the polls are going to be this time. But as things stand right now, it looks like the Senate is roughly a toss-up. It's about a 50-50 chance that the Democrats will hold it and about a 50-50 chance that the Republicans will take it. But the Republicans are quite heavily favored to take the House of Representatives. The House has always looked pretty good for the GOP um, in this cycle, but the Senate has tightened significantly in the past month. But still, you know, you might think that this isn't a great picture for the Democrats, and indeed it's not. But things do look significantly better than you would expect, given some certain fundamentals that govern every single election. So the first is just the fact that these are midterm elections. It's very, very rare for a president's party to hold ground or advance at the midterms. There are some exceptions to that, but there's only actually been two exceptions since World War II. One of those was 2002, when George Bush was riding this kind of post-9-11 wave of patriotism. And then the other was 1998, when it seemed that the electorate were just really, really fed up of the Republicans' attempt to impeach Bill Clinton. So midterms are usually just so bad for the president's party, and that's especially the case if you, if you bring in two other factors. The first of those is the economy. So the economic situation in the U.S. right now is actually quite mixed. You know, with this very, very low unemployment, but there's also really very high inflation and many, many people are dissatisfied with the cost of living. Actually, people's rating of the economy right now is as bad as it was in 2008 after the global financial crisis. So that's something that says that Democrats should be really, really worried because usually how people rate the economy is the biggest indicator of how they're going to vote in, in midterm elections. The other factor that's really important and, and always important for midterms is the president's approval rating. Biden's approval rating is currently at 42%, which is actually lower than Trump's was at the same time in 2018. If, if you can imagine that, that just shows say something about, firstly, the, the extent of the partisan divide in American politics right now, but also just how important this economic question is. 
An approval rating that, that, that is that low usually bodes really poorly for the president's party. So when you kind of mash together all these fundamentals and, and put it into models of how midterm elections have previously gone, you would usually expect this to lead to about a 40 or a 50 seat loss in the House for the Democrats. Now, as the polls stand right now, they're actually looking at, you know, quote unquote, merely a loss of about 20 seats. But because they underperformed in the House in 2020, that's actually going to be enough to just completely lose control of the House of Representatives and the chance to pass new laws and carry out government oversight in the second half of Biden's first term. So it's a really, really bad situation for Democrats in the House that the chance that they're going to keep it is essentially zero. And I think that there's significant risk on the upside of that prediction that it might actually end up to be much worse than just a 20 seat loss. But that's kind of the scenario we're looking at. We're not looking at a good night for the Democrats in the House. Things do look better in the Senate for a few reasons. So the first is that just the Senate map this time is quite good for Democrats. Uh, every single um, election cycle, only a third of senators in the country are up for re-election. And this time, the, the states that are, have senators up for re-election are states that, well, many of them are states that Biden won in 2020. And all the Democrats need to do is just hold those Senate seats or win Senate seats in states that Biden won in 2020. So that's an easier thing for them to do than, than their task in the House. But it's also worth noticing, noting that actually after this election, later in the decade, the Senate elections just get completely brutal for the Democrats. They're going to be having to win seats in red states or hold seats in red states. So this is really the Democrats' last chance to um, maybe even add a senator, but at least to keep the Senate composition in its current current state. And absent some kind of like massive um, political realignment, which we just don't really expect, this is going to be their last chance to, to, to do well in the Senate for quite some time. The other reason that the Senate's looking a bit better than, than the House for the Democrats comes down to what we call candidate quality. Now, this is something really funny. This is actually something that even Mitch McConnell and the Republican leader in the Senate has admitted. Someone asked him a few weeks ago, why is it that your candidates are doing so much worse than the House candidates are? And he said, well, in the Senate, you know, candidate quality matters. It actually matters who we put up for election. And this time the Republicans have put up some really, really bizarre, extreme figures for election in the Senate, just basically due to primaries where the MAGA wing of the party picks their favorite candidate and then those candidates have turned out to really bomb with the general electorate. So you have candidates like um, Herschel Walker, Mehmet Oz, who we're going to talk about a bit more in a minute, Blake Masters. These are all very, very extreme kind of out there candidates. And I mean, that being said, some of them are, are actually polling, you know, disturbingly well. They could, some of them could still win the seats that they're contesting. But in general, this has been a real, real drag for Republicans in this cycle that they've just nominated such duds for the Senate. So that's where we are right now, and the fundamentals suggest that Dem Democrats should be fairly happy with this. But earlier in the year, people had actually hoped for a lot more. There was this brief period about two months ago when the polls were tightening, and some Democrats actually dared to hope that they might even retain control of the House. Now, this, I think, was always a bit of a pipe dream, but but the, the fact that this moment came and went has people questioning, you know, well, what happened there? Why did we not actually capitalize on that momentum and, and, and do better in the House? 
And I think that there were probably like three things that were contributing to this um, improvement in the situation for Democrats, but have since kind of turned around and, and not really worked out. So the first of those was the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, this was a really significant piece of legislation that, that the Democrats passed a couple of months ago. It does a great deal to invest in America's future, particularly the energy transition. But Democrats packaged it as primarily an inflation reduction measure, why they called it Inflation Reduction Act. But the fact is that it doesn't actually really do that much in the short term to address inflation. You know, it maybe helps a little bit over the coming decade. And I think that voters have sensed this real disconnect when Democrats go out and boast about their legislative achievements, they boast about the IRA, but then in focus groups, voters are saying, well, I don't really see why they're boasting about these things that they've accomplished when they haven't helped me. You know, they haven't helped me put food on the table affordably. They haven't helped me pay my family's bills. And really what Democrats are suffering from here is that the, the other part of Biden's legislative agenda, you know, what was called the Build Back Better agenda, which there was a big part of this that was supposed to be about caring, about things like the child tax credit, about things doing things to make healthcare cheaper, you know, doing things to really help families bottom line. But this just got completely eviscerated in the Senate, mostly due to Joe Manchin. And Democrats have basically been left with having achieved the part of their agenda that does like super good stuff for America's future, but doesn't really help people now. And they haven't been putting money in people's pockets. And I think that that's led to this kind of disconnect with with voters and where voters are right now emotionally. Another thing that Democrats really hoped was going to, to help them was all of these troubles that Donald Trump was having a couple of months ago. So, you know, this, you know, this was this moment where it basically felt like we were back in the Trump administration. Every single headline was about Trump. Um, and this was to do with his, you know, how he basically stole these classified government documents and then took them to Mar-a-Lago. Now, legal proceedings in this are still ongoing, and it's still quite possible that Trump might be charged with a crime sometime next year. But because the Justice Department has this long-running policy that if there is a, an investigation ongoing that might affect the outcome of an election, they will put that investigation on hold until after the election. So basically, there's been no real new developments in this case for a long time, and that that's taken Trump out of the headlines and it's really reduced the salience, I think, of these arguments about, about um, the Republicans being the party of Trump and being a threat to democracy. The other thing that Democrats really hoped was going to have a big impact for them was the Dobbs decision. So this decision to invalidate Roe v. Wade that the Supreme Court took a few months ago. And this is obviously something that has motivated a lot of Democratic voters. And it's also one reason to think that maybe the polls might be wrong this year if they're not correctly capturing the type of voter who is highly motivated by this decision and by the future of abortion policy in America. But it's also the case that the, the Republicans have actually done quite a good job at containing the damage here in the sense that their candidates have not really been talking about a federal ban on abortion. They've mostly been talking about making an issue for the states. And I think that, you know, many voters, particularly in blue states, and it is actually in, in House uh, races in blue states that Democrats are having quite a lot of problems. Voters there probably think, well, okay, my state's going to protect abortion rights anyway. So it doesn't really matter particularly how I vote in this election, you know, that that's not really going to affect the future of abortion policy. So there just seems to have been, again, this issue has, has died away from the headlines a little bit. It's not motivating as many voters as Democrats hoped that it would, I think. 
It's also worth mentioning that another issue has emerged as a really big one in these midterms that I think blindsided Democrats a little bit, and that has been the issue of crime. So the Republicans have embarked, I think, on a very purposeful strategy to try to offset the damage that abortion did to them, particularly with suburban white voters and suburban white women, and focusing on the issue of crime to try to win those voters back. And it is true that since the pandemic, violent crime has increased a lot in American cities. And this is resonating, I think, a lot with voters, even in blue states. And it's causing some governor's races that we wouldn't expect to be difficult for Democrats to actually turn out to be quite difficult. So Kathy Hochul is facing a tougher fight to win re-election, or sorry, to win election in New York. Michelle Grisham is is struggling in New Mexico, where there's been a lot of controversy over homicides in Albuquerque, which have been setting records now for a few years. And Tina Kotek is even struggling in Oregon, where, again, there's been an awful lot of upset over the last few years about protests and unrest and violence in Portland, um, you know, due to crime, due to Antifa, due to all kind of the protests that have been going on there. So crime is really emerging as something that's difficult for Democrats, but it's also kind of interesting that this is also proving difficult for some Republican governors as well. And in Oklahoma, a candidate called Joy Hoffmeister, who I think has the best name of any uh, any governor candidate this year, has used the issue of crime against the Republican candidate Kevin Stitt and actually seems to be within striking distance of, of reaching Oak, uh, reaching the governor's mansion in Oklahoma. So this is the this is like a, a weird mixed picture that we have in these midterms. It's a little bit less nationalized, it's a little bit more regional and a little bit more local than we've seen in recent election cycles. But it does still seem that it's not going to be a great night for for, for the Democrats. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to dive into some particularly colorful candidates and races that we think you should watch this uh, cycle. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Hi, so welcome back. Um, So, Catherine, thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. And so what races have you been watching this time, Catherine? And who do you think we should pay attention to? Yeah, well, I really wanted to look at the Pennsylvania Senate race because, as you mentioned, there's some really toss-up races during this election. And in this one, it's between Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz, who you mentioned earlier. And you might remember Oz, also known as Dr. Oz, from his years spent as a frequent guest promoting kind of spurious weight loss programs on the Oprah Winfrey show or from his own TV show that he had. And even before he pivoted to politics, he's faced some hot water in the past for making some kind of dubious medical claims. And last November, he announced that he was going to run as a Republican in the race for one of Pennsylvania's Senate seats. And after a pretty tight primary, Oz became the Republican candidate, um, and he's facing off against John Fetterman, who is the current lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania and was previously also a mayor in a small town outside of Pittsburgh. And this race has been a pretty heated one from the beginning. Fetterman really exploded in popularity on social media, even nationally outside of Pennsylvania, for his ads that criticized Oz for living in neighboring New Jersey and not Pennsylvania. 
and for being just very out of touch and elite. And Oz is indeed reported to be worth between 76 and $300 million. So he would become one of the richest members of Congress if he were elected. But on the other hand, Oz has accused Fetterman of being soft on crime, and he's criticized Fetterman's policies that support clean energy. And even though Fetterman's kind of down-to-earth, real-talk campaign has made him popular, at least nationally, the race is increasingly tight. And Fetterman suffered a stroke back in May, which left him off of the campaign trail for a few weeks and has raised some questions about whether he's, you know, medically fit for office right now. And Oz has even kind of exaggerated these concerns and mocked Fetterman's stroke recovery. And the one and only debate for this election took place last week. Fetterman's shaky performance really led to questions on both sides of the aisle about why he agreed to the debate in the first place. And afterwards, his lead has shrunk and polls are nearly evenly split. Um, Actually, Chuck Schumer was kind of caught on a hot mic the other day talking to President Biden about it and saying that, you know, it wasn't as bad as he anticipated. It's still very tight and a pretty big toss up. And the way that this race will play out is really important for the Senate, because if Fetterman does win, it could help the Democrats retain control of the Senate, even if some other seats flip to Republicans. But if Oz wins, on the other hand, it'll mean that the Democrats have to keep control of more of their existing Senate seats, and it'll put another ally of Trump, who's, you know, touted hydroxychloroquine as a COVID cure and has taken a really hard line against abortion into the Senate. Did 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 you watch the debate or did you see any of it? Yeah. I, I like, I do have a bit of sympathy with this uh, question that people are asking about why did they let him do that debate? Yeah. No, me too. You know, it, it really doesn't seem like that was ever going to be a good idea. No, I think that maybe there was a lot of pressure to do it, but it was not great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that he's he's faced so many questions because he didn't release his medical records. Yeah. He's basically taken the Trump route, and we yeah. all we all criticize Trump for this. You know that he he's just released a letter from his doctor and not his medical records. And I guess if he had not turned up to the debate, it would have been bad. Yeah, and the letter was also back from like June, I think. So right. Yeah, right. And what's like hasn't hasn't what's Oprah's position on this? Oprah is like a big like uh, kingmaker this election, but yeah, what, what she said. Yeah. So Oprah, um, she's not very. She doesn't often endorse. Um, people. I mean, she has in the past, but she released a statement or her office did pretty soon after Dr. Oz announced her candidacy. And she said that, you know, it's great in a democracy that anyone can decide to run for office. And now Dr. Oz has made that decision. It's up to the people of Pennsylvania to decide who they'll elect. So you can interpret that in a lot of ways. Um, But she hasn't, she's neither denounced Oz nor endorsed Fetterman. Um, but in another race, she has endorsed a candidate, and I think you were going to talk about. Yeah, so there's, uh, there is indeed a, another really interesting race that's going on that I don't think has got much media attention, but the candidate in this race has won that rare Oprah endorsement. This candidate is Wes Moore. He's running to be the next Democratic governor of Maryland. Um, Maryland, for the last eight years, has had a um, moderate Republican governor called Larry Hogan, one of the last true moderate Republicans in the country, I guess, you know, who's who's in elected office. Um, Hogan has actually refused to endorse the Republican who's running to um, 
succeeding him, this is a guy called Dan Cox. Uh, Hogan has referred to Dan Cox as a QAnon whack job, and that's you know it, because it just uh, Dan Cox is such an extreme candidate. He is indeed a, a QAnon whack job. It looks like Wes Moore is coasting to election in Maryland, and a lot of people are really excited about this. It, Wes Moore would be the first African American governor of Maryland. He would be just the third elected African American governor in the country ever, which is an amazing statistic. You know. Uh, horrible statistic and he would probably be the only black governor in the country next year because it does look like unfortunately that Stacey Abrams is not going to pull it off in in Georgia so this would be a really big deal I mean you know Maryland is is you know it's it's part of what during the Civil War was called the border south it was a slave state and but it remained in the Union during the Civil War mostly just because there were so many federal troops so bad nearby who basically wouldn't let it secede but you know, it's 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 in many ways a southern state, and it's going to have a black governor, and that's a that's a really amazing thing. It has a lot of symbolic importance. Beyond that, Moore is also generating a huge amount of buzz in the Democratic Party. You know, there's just this general ongoing issue in the party that they're not producing young leaders. If you look at the people who are at the top of Democratic politics right now, people like Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Dianne Feinstein, who literally has dementia and will not stay down from office you know these people are just really old and it's not always clear who's going to be leading the next generation and more i think is exciting people who want this new generation of young and diverse leaders and he has a particular approach to politics that i think is something that's it's 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 worth trying he he calls his brand progressive patriotism Basically, you know, Moore is he's actually he's not really a progressive, he's actually more of a of a moderate Democrat, but he's trying to win back this brand of patriotism from the Republican Party. And that's just, you know, something that Democrats absolutely should be doing. You know, when you have a party that supports insurrections, that supports overturning American democracy, how can this party refer to itself as the party of patriots? And Wes Moore really hits them on this. So it's just a quote of how, how he puts it on the campaign trail. He said recently, I think this bastardization of the idea of patriotism will not be tolerated. I'm running against someone who is an insurrectionist. I won't be lectured by him nor anyone else in his wing of the Republican Party who wants to define patriotism for people who are willing to fight for the overturning of the government. That's not patriotism. My definition of patriotism was serving as a member of the 82nd Airborne Division in Afghanistan and leading paratroopers in combat. So I think that, you know, this is this is a, a brand that the Democrats need to lean into, at least in certain parts of the country. And although the, the, the progressive part of Moore's agenda is quite muted and he, he's firmly positioned as a moderate, I think the way we have to understand him is as someone who's trying to recreate the coalition that Barack Obama put together in 2008 and then also, you know, held together in 20, 2012. It's going to be really interesting to see if Moore can recreate this coalition and that path to victory in today's Democratic Party, which has moved much further to the left than it was during Obama's time in office. It's it's uh, it's a strange thing to think now, but you know Obama in in two thousand and eight did pretty well among non college educated white voters, and that is the group that the 
the Democrats are now f- having difficulty reaching. So can more, you know, can more pull it off? Can more recreate that coalition and help to win back some of those voters for Democrats? So I'm just going to be watching his career over the next decade. And I think that everyone else should be too, because it, it's going to really be quite fundamental to the future of the party. As you said, he's even drawn some comparisons or other people have drawn comparisons between him and Barack Obama. I recently rewatched Obama's speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2004 that really propelled him into stardom. And so, yeah, it'll be really interesting to see if more will be able to recreate recreate some of that buzz that Obama did. Yeah. And I guess, you know, like you, you have to be a little bit careful talking about this, you know, because I'm not just saying like, oh, he's a young black guy. So, you know, hence, hence he's, he's, he's the new Obama. But it is absolutely like you say, it's that it's the energy that he brings and, and the, the connection that he brings. And he's just, I mean, I was watching Obama campaign um, the other day. And whenever you watch him, you just think like, wow, you know, this guy is like a once in a generation, you know, a once in a lifetime political talent. And that's what Democrats have been missing, someone who can electrify people in that way. Who knows, you know, if, if Mo's going to be able to pull it off, but he seems like a, a pretty good bet. Now, the, the other thing that always happens during the midterm elections, and I think this is something that particularly to, to listeners abroad is, is, is a little bit weird, is that you have all of these statewide ballot initiatives, basically like mini referendums. Now, as a British person, the word referendum makes me like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like that word because that's how we got Brexit. But actually, you know, ballot measures in, in, in American elections are often used to achieve all kinds of progressive goals. And, and there's really interesting stuff goes on at the state level. And Catherine, you were going to tell us a little bit about, about various initiatives that are on the ballot this time and, and also uh, particularly do a bit of a dive into what's happening in your home state of Colorado. Yeah, yeah, you're right that ballot initiatives, I think, are quite a foreign concept to a lot of people outside of the U.S. And they actually aren't that common in every single state, but in some, they're very, very common. And so kind of on a nationwide level, this year, there's 140 statewide ballot initiatives in 38 states. And this isn't even all of them because that doesn't include, you know, district and local initiatives as well. And as you might expect, there's a lot of abortion-related ballot initiatives. Some are to protect abortion rights, like we have in Michigan, and others are to limit or eliminate abortion rights. And then five states also have measures on their ballots to legalize marijuana. And that would add to the 19 states plus Washington, D.C. that have already legalized it. So if all of these pass, then nearly half of the U.S. would have um, legalized recreational marijuana. (laughs) And then this year, um, Nevada is also voting whether or not to be the third state joining Maine and Alaska that would add ranked choice voting for certain races including congressional races. And so just to kind of quickly explain what ranked choice voting or RCV is. Yeah, so ranked choice voting, also known as RCV, can work in different ways. But generally, candidates rank some or all of the candidates according to their preference. So first choice number one, second number two, and so on. And then the candidate with the fewest number of first choice votes, those votes are then transferred to those voters' second choice candidate. And this continues until someone has reached a majority. So maybe a more practical example, we can go back to the 2020 Democratic primary. And we could imagine that there's three candidates in this case, say it's Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Amy Klobuchar. So say you vote your first choice for Bernie Sanders, second for Joe Biden, third for Amy Klobuchar. And let's say that then in the first round of votes, Bernie Sanders receives the fewest number of votes. So then he would be eliminated but your vote would be transferred then to Joe Biden. 
So that's how um, ranked choice voting is often said that it prevents people from, you know, wasting a vote on a less popular candidate because then their vote is transferred to their second choice candidate. And in Alaska's congressional election earlier this year, that was their first ranked choice election. According to a lot of surveys, voters felt like they understood the process thanks to really extensive outreach and education efforts. And this would be the same case in Nevada. So it wouldn't be implemented immediately and there would be a lot of efforts to educate voters about how RCV works. But interestingly, in this case, a lot of both Democratic and Republican establishment groups are opposing the ballot initiative, saying that it's confusing. But as I mentioned, you know, this prevents people from wasting a vote. It also helps um, to form a consensus, and it also makes races a bit less negative um, in campaigning as well. Five states this year have initiatives about whether or not to repeal a language, allowing for servitude or enslavement as punishment or repayment for debt. And these are practices that generally obviously no longer take place um, and are largely symbolic from, you know, old language left over from the time of slavery. However, a lot of supporters hope that these could help to end forced prison labor where prisoners do work for literal pennies per day. Yeah, so now, as you mentioned, I wanted to talk a bit about some ballot initiatives in Colorado, which is my home state. So this year we have 11 different statewide initiatives. One of the interesting ballot initiatives this year is Proposition 122, which would create a program for supervised administration of certain types of psychoactive drugs, including psilocybin. And I think this is really interesting because Colorado and Washington State were the first two states to legalize marijuana for recreational use in 2012. And since then, you know, 19 states have legalized it. So if this passes, I think it'll be interesting to see if this prompts other states to have similar measures in the future and kind of creates a a bit of an effect on that. Yeah, so there's a lot of important issues on the ballot this year, but I also wanted to mention one that I've talked to you about before from a few years ago, because it really just shows how wild, in a literal sense this time, ballot initiatives can be. So in 2020, Coloradans voted to pass Prop 114, and that directed our state's wildlife services to develop plans to reintroduce wolves to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado by 2024. Wolves? Yes, wolves. (laughs) And this initiative passed mostly in urban Denver area districts, and it was extremely unpopular in rural mountainous counties, as you can expect. Um, and in the end, it passed with only 50.91% of the vote. So wait, wait a minute. So I mean, like, we talk a lot about urban rural polarization in America, but in this case, you have the urban voters literally voting to set wolves on the rural voters. Exactly, <laughs> literally. <laughs> I mean, what, what are the arguments in favor of doing this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's been kind of interesting because Wolves have been, you know, gone in Colorado for a long time, um, but they're kind of starting to very slowly come back. And we do have, you know, po- problems with overpopulation of deer and things like that. And so proponents think that it would kind of balance out and restore balance to the ecosystem in Colorado. But opponents, as you might imagine, people from those rural areas who are farmers and ranches, they argued that they would be the ones suffering from this with like their livestock being attacked by wolves. <laughs> But it really just shows how, you know, a paragraph on a ballot that receives barely any majority can have a huge impact on a state or a county's future. And in a lot of cases, the language in these ballot initiatives is really, really opaque. And, you know, you can receive an explainer book in the mail. And I used websites like Ballotpedia and local newspapers that explain the pros and the cons of different initiatives. But this takes a lot of time. 
And so in cases where there's sadly no local newspapers anymore, I almost like I really wonder how many people take the time to look into each and every one of those issues before they vote. Yeah, probably not, you know, and then you you have this situation where people turn out because they really want to vote for like, you know, the senator or the governor or something they know about. And then they're probably just taking a wild stab at these issues. And then the next thing you know, everyone's been eaten by wolves. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. Wow. After the break, we're going to come back and talk about what implications these midterms might have for the future of American democracy and also American foreign policy towards Ukraine. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Um, These midterm elections are going to have a really big influence on the future of American democracy. And I actually think that although in a general sense, the future of democracy is something that we've been talking about and we've seen talked about a lot in the media, I still don't feel that really the stakes of these elections have been properly communicated. And to understand those stakes, you have to start with the fact that Donald Trump's attempted coup in 2020 only failed because state and federal office holders stood in his way. And that is not necessarily going to be the case if the result of these elections is to serve up a new slate of GOP office holders in Congress, in governor's mansions, and as secretaries of state who are fully signed on to the MAGA movement. And this, you know, the officials that are elected in these elections can have a huge impact on 2024 in a number of ways. So on January the 6th, 2025, Congress will get together and it will certify who won in the presidential election. And if, you know, Republican congressmen refuse to do that, if they filibuster, if they try to just stop the stop that from happening, this can create a constitutional crisis. And there's even more points of failure that exist potentially at the state level as well. So in particularly in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Nevada, you have governor candidates and you have secretary of state candidates who have vowed to do things that might really, really make it impossible to run a free and fair election in their state. Actually, the, um, the Republican candidate who's running for governor of Wisconsin said, I think it was yesterday, that if he becomes governor, no Democrat will ever be elected again in the state of Wisconsin. This is crazy. And and it's also difficult to understand because every state runs elections in slightly different ways. And so the plans that these governors have and secretaries of state have all kind of vary. But there's basically two main elements to it. So the first is that they plan to mess around with the voting itself. Um, Some of these plans are just continuations of of things we've seen before, like messing around with voter rolls. But there's there's also new elements. So some of these candidates have pledged to move to hand counting systems because they falsely claim that the electronic ballot counting systems are in some ways, you know, unfair or corrupt. But you can't hand count votes in an election in which millions of people vote. It's just, it's going to take forever. It's going to be enormously prone to error. And it's just not an efficient way to run an election. And it, it creates so many opportunities for raising questions about the results. And it seems like indeed that might actually be the point, you know, that, that, that basically if they can create enough uncertainty about who won the election, 
um, then they can, you know, stop Democrats from legitimately winning some of these states. And if governors or secretaries of states or state legislatures then refuse to accept the outcome of the election in their state and basically send a, a, a slate of electors to the electoral college for the Republicans, even though the Democrats won their state, this is going to cause a constitutional crisis. Now, Democrats do think that they've they've hit on something that might help here, so they want to reform what's called the Electoral Count Act. And this might happen in the lame duck session of, of Congress, but there's also a chance that it might not happen, that actually they're not going to reform the Electoral Count Act. And even if they do, this, this piece of reformed legislation attempts to basically streamline the process of certifying who won a presidential election, take out some of these decisions that Republicans can maybe manipulate, but to work the whole thing depends on the judiciary. And ultimately, these cases are going to end up getting appealed to the Supreme Court. And it's very, very unclear to me that you can rely on this Republican Supreme Court to necessarily do the right thing in, in, in those situations. So this is a, an issue that, that really worries me. And it's something that hasn't really featured much in, in democratic messaging for this election. I think it's important to, to realize that, you know, we know from the beginning of the Biden administration that Biden and the people around him do really understand this issue, but they've basically made a bet that, that talking about it is not the way to win votes. So they think that the way that they can defend democracy is that they can make the case to voters that they're delivering for those voters on kitchen table issues and basically basically kind of win those voters back for democracy by showing what effective governance looks like, showing how the Democrats can do things for ordinary people. But, you know, like we discussed earlier in this episode, that's a pretty hard message to sell at a time of 10% inflation. And I think if the GOP does well in these midterms, and then there's a major crisis of democracy in 2024, there's going to be a huge amount of second guessing about whether this was the right approach to take. So we've really got to watch what happens in these midterms. And I, I would also argue that this this problem isn't going to begin in 2024. It's going to begin next Wednesday morning when GOP candidates who lost are probably going to claim fraud. They're probably going to try to again incite uncertainty about the electoral process, file court cases, and we're going to have a mini repeat of what happened in 2020. And you know, with so many elections in so many states, I think there's a chance that we might even see some violence or, or serious constitutional controversy after these midterms. So it's a very live issue right now as well and, and one that I'm really concerned about. The election's also going to have implications for U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. So I think we don't often think about, you know, the foreign policy implications of midterm elections. But this year, I think we've seen a lot of people talking about potential implications related to U.S. support for Ukraine. Even though Republicans in Congress have thus far been very supportive, very supportive of U.S. military aid to Ukraine, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy recently suggested that this might not remain the case for long if Republicans do gain control of the House. And he implied that, you know, President Biden isn't focusing enough on issues at home and is instead spending too much money supporting Ukraine in a war with no end in sight. But I don't know. I don't really think that it's too likely at this point that even a Republican majority in the House would change that much because there's still Republicans who are very supportive of sending military aid to Ukraine. And in the Senate, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has also remained supportive. But I think that what we are seeing is a pretty big clash between your traditional John McCain era Republicans who are very hawkish on foreign foreign policy and protective of the liberal international order and newer Trump allies who will say anything to win their base and get elected. 
But amongst the American public, people are generally still very supportive of aid to Ukraine across political lines, and even more so than they were a few months ago since now Ukraine has started to take back certain territories and is perceived to be doing better in the war. And so I think that what these Republicans do if and when they're elected could be very different some, than some of the rhetoric that they're using right now. I do I do wonder a little bit about um, how the beginning of like the 2024 election cycle might affect this. So it's been really notable to me that Donald Trump really hasn't been saying that much about Ukraine over the last mm-hmm. year or so. And I mean, you know, it's probably because he's not on Twitter, so he's not in my face every day, but you know. Not it, for now, yeah. Not for now, <laughs> we'll yeah, see. right, yeah, thanks, Elon. But also, you know, yeah, you know, you. I mean, sometimes I, I um, have to go on Truth Social and stuff to try and see what he's saying. And he's not really talking about Ukraine. And But I think that when he starts campaigning for 2024, he's going to have to have a coherent message on this issue. And it might well be one that's, that returns to his kind of traditional pro-Russian position, you know, that he's, he's had for as long as he's been in public life. So I do then, I worry a little bit that, that's going to put pressure on um, Republican congressmen because they're primary voters who are all, you know, queuing on whack jobs to, to quote what Larry Hogan said about Dan Cox. That, that's going to, you know, congressmen are going to feel pressure from their primary electorate. So I definitely feel less secure uh, with a Republican controlled House when it comes to continued aid to Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And I do think that also public opinion in the US could very well change in the coming months as well, depending on the course of the war and also the continued effects, you know, around the world on the economy and whatnot. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It's going to be a tough winter, you know, economically and and socially also in Europe. You know, we're starting to see a a lot of protests here and and things like that. So, yeah, it's a a really um, febrile situation and I feel less, I sleep less soundly at night (laughs) with a Republican-controlled house than I would with a Democratic-controlled house with with that. Um, So, Thanks for listening, everyone. And um, this was a, a, a whistle-stop tour through the issues and personalities and implications of these midterm elections. We're going to be back next Wednesday, the morning after, to bring an initial insight into the results. We might even do two bonus episodes next week. It, it depends how quickly we know the results, because as we know, election night is often election week now, and it takes a long time for the outcome to be clear in key races. But anyway, we're going to be we're going to be hitting you with a lot of coverage on the podcast. So I hope you'll tune in again, and we'll speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.